0: Well, good evening. My name is Tim Darty, and I was one of the folks that was very fortunate to be able to get to go on this trip, and and I do want, before we start, I want to thank this church for having a heart to allow us to go and do this, and and lest we forget, we do have three people that are still on the field right now, and they're coming back sometime this week. Is that right? I don't know. The 14th? So... um, I I think I should speak for everyone in the fact that we are so thankful that this church not only reaches out to our communities, but has a heart to reach out to the world. And um, and on on behalf of them, I want to thank you for that. I, too, didn't expect to be up here saying these things, because I thought David was going to be here, but he's not. So um, I get to to start the evening off. Um, And we were going to share some of our impressions. And I don't uh, the video David Higgs put this together, and I, what a beautiful song to express what we experienced. And um, um, I got to have a copy of it. that's that's great. But um, I wanted to share with you the first the things that I experienced. The shortly. By the way, you're going to see some pictures flipping up behind us of some different things we did. That's one when we were just getting, we got back to the United States and we wanted an American meal. We were tired of chicken and rice and, and mystery meat. So, um, But anyway, the first thing that we did on our trip, we got to um, Miami. And we were sitting in, if you've ever been to an airport, you've, you know how the waiting area is before you board a plane. And there was some pictures, and these are some folks we met. The first thing we noticed that everybody had different colored shirts on, like the green ones. We had our gray ones on, and all of a sudden we started thinking, well, these people must be going to the same place we are. So we started talking to them, and in fact, the whole waiting area was full of people expecting the same thing we were. They were anticipating going to Haiti, and they were doing different mission things. We met uh, folks that were Lutherans, they were Catholics, they were Methodists, they were Baptists, they were, you name it, they were there. And they had teams, and they were ready to go also. And as we talked to them, we found out that we all had something in common. And that thing that was in common was stronger than the differences that we had. And the thing that was in common is that we were all there because of Jesus Christ. And we were there... Because there were people that needed something from us. And in that, that unity, there was something I've never seen before happen in an airport. The whole group, all of the groups got together, and we took over that waiting area and made a huge circle. And right there in the middle of the Miami airport, we had a prayer session. For not only for us, but for them, but most of all for the people in Haiti, and for God's glory to be shown in what each group was going to be going to do. So, what a wonderful experience that was for me. That was the beginning of the trip. But while we're talking about beginnings, I also want to share one other thing that really impressed me. You may see on the slide a picture come up and every morning before we went to work, we would go and we would start singing hymns right in the middle of their neighborhood. And before you know it, people would people, all these people would be coming out of their places where they lived and they would we would make this huge circle. and they would say in English, in English. So we would sing a hymn in English. and when we were done, we would stop and those folks, without exception, I think, sang the same hymn, in Creole, and that's their language, and they would sing the same song to the same God, the same Savior that we sang to. And what, what I walked away, one of the things I walked away with from this experience was, if you look at the pictures, you will think, what in the world do these people have in common? And on the surface, it doesn't look like we have a lot. But I will tell you what I learned, that our Lord and Savior whether he is in the airport in Miami in this ch- a church here in Harrisburg or in a neighborhood in Haiti he is the same God he is the same Savior same Lord and we worship him the same it, but it, and it all comes out beautiful and um, I walked away from this experience understanding that that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter who you are where you are if the Lord is the Lord of your life we are brothers and sisters, and we all have the same goal. We all have the same love and we all, the, the, the same mission. And they understood that. Now, they put us to shame in our singing. I'm going to tell you what. These folks can rock. And when they get going, this is one of the circles where they would, we would get together in the morning and they would come. We would learn one, ver, one verse, and we would sing, we'd sing one verse. Well, they'd pick the same song and they'd sing five verses they knew it all but I I discovered that they don't have they can't read most of them can't read and they don't have the word to hear but they have some missionaries that have taught them the word of God through song and they have learned these hymns and these songs and that's how they worship and when they worship let me tell you they do so it was a a pleasure and a a wonderful thing for me to find out And, and that's what I took away from our trip so I thank you for letting us go, uh, and I'm going to sit down, and I don't, I don't want to take everybody else's time, but I think Lucy has some things to share. And I know Lucy's brought a cheering squad, and I understand that they're going to hoot and holler and whoo hoo So, hoo yeah. <laughs> So Lucy, come get your crowd riled up.
1: Hi, um, I'm Lucy Maynard. I usually don't talk very good in front of people, so... I prayed all day that I can get through it. I know I'm going to cry, but at least I hope you can understand me when I'm talking. Um, I, first of all, I printed out a book of some of my pictures, and I'm just going to pass it around. You guys can look at it if you want through the crowd here. Um, <laughs> well, when the earthquake first came in February, and I wanted to go as soon as I saw the pictures of all the children. Sorry. Most of you know that I love children. And um but anyway that didn't happen then. In February I didn't get the chance to go. Uh um, Nanette and I were thinking about going. There was a group in Florida that was gonna go and uh we were hoping we were get to get gonna get to go, but the date was pushed back and Nanette couldn't go and so I didn't go either so since then, I've really been praying. I've really been praying, you know, that I would get an opportunity and a chance to go down there. And um, mostly, it was I was praying. I know this is probably not right. That was praying for me that I just wanted to go and hold some babies and love on some babies because I knew I could do that. But um, as the months went, came and went, um, Tim and Ben decided that they were going to get a group together. There was a a group from Metropolis that I actually sold their airline tickets and they got to go down there. And so, um, Tim, they came and spoke to us and we were going to go. We decided we were all going to go when we needed nine or ten people. And um, I kept saying, I'm going, I'm going, and kept praying that God would work everything out, that someone, had... there would be enough of my family and friends that would take care of Felix and stuff, and that all worked out. <clears throat> I'm going to have to look up. I'm sorry. But um, so, and I still kept praying that I would get to go and, uh, and you know, go and be with the children. And I knew that we were going to build cinder block houses, and I didn't know what, I remember what cinder blocks were because my dad had a big cinder ball ash in the back of our, behind our garage, and I used to, I wasn't supposed to step on it because I could get cinder pieces of cinder block and, <laughs> in my feet. And I do have a big scar from one that was in my foot. But anyway, I was going to go and do whatever I could. I would learn how to do, I could lift a brick or hand somebody something or do whatever. But when Judy handed out the papers, I started uh, reading through the papers about it. And it said, uh, it gave Sam and Dolores' name, who are the minute, uh, missionaries that are down there. And um, I Googled their name and looked and read about them and what they were doing, what God had done in their lives and what they were doing for the people of Haiti. And... Um, I read on there also it said Alex's house and I thought, where it said an orphanage and I thought, oh wow, there's an orphanage, you know, that's close by there, we might get to go. And so I I Googled that and read about that and that is um, these two brothers and their friend, whose name was Alex, was going to start an orphanage for children before the earthquake came. And their friend Alex was killed in the earthquake and they went ahead and opened up the orphanage for the children. I think they said there was like 17 children that were there and um, from all ages, I think from like two on up to like I don't know if they were 15 or 16 but um, and on the sheet it said something about we would probably get to go to Alex's house so that first day when we got there the first night um, our there was two different groups there was a group from Texas there, and our group I heard him say, you're going to Alex's house tomorrow for church. And I was like, yay, awesome, you know. So as soon as we walked in there, the just the sound and the voice of those 17 children, were I don't know if we were late or not, but they were already singing and praising God when we walked in. And just the sound of their voices, I couldn't stop crying the whole time. I just cried. And even though the language was in Creole, they sang in Creole. I didn't understand. I mean, I knew the songs that... Um, that they were singing, that I couldn't, you know, I didn't understand the words they were saying, that it was beautiful. And um, so that, my prayer was answered there. I did get to go. And then the next day when, um, oh, they told us that night that we would be working in the area of the Alex's house is where we'd be working and building the houses and stuff. And so um, I still was thinking, I'm going to go back there. I've got to get a chance to go back there. But the next morning when we walked to the area of the houses where Tim was talking about where we all gathered, children just came running out of their homes or tents or wherever they were sleeping and joined in the circle uh, when we sang and stuff. And then they all just took off with us when we walked down to the houses and, st- and stayed with us all day long. So um, every day I got to spend with children. I didn't build a house. Um, I handed some guys some water. And then <laughs> Or a tool or something like that, but I, I didn't work on a cinder block house. I just stayed with the children. I got to know the children that were there in the village. Um, there were several of them that came. I mean, every day they came. Um, I met a mother that I call her the Candy Lady. We had nicknames for people because we didn't really understand what their names, some of their names were. But, and I learned that very first day that um she came out with a big bowl of candy every day and I think that some of the missionaries before had given her that candy and so she, but the kids would have to put a coin in there to be able to get a piece of candy and not very many of them ever had a coin to, that came by and got a piece of candy so I went they'd already told me before I had to be careful but we couldn't hand out stuff but I felt so bad I went in and got a five dollar bill and I told her that candy for everybody well they went crazy almost caused a riot they were screaming and yelling and jumping and grabbing till finally this lady laid over her bowl of candy and made them all get back. So from that day on, I knew that if I took something, and every day I had my pockets full of stuff and my backpack full, and I would go in and replenish my pockets and stuff, but you had to hand a piece of candy or food to the children, and they would run, run away to eat it because someone else would try to steal it from it or take it from us. And like I said, the children stayed there all day long with us. and what we gave them was you see what they ate all day. But they all seemed very happy. And um, they all played and sing and they danced, and they jumped rope. We took jump rope and um, balloons and we took the story cloth and read stories to them. And even though they spoke a different language than what we did, they we could still communicate and understand. And they could understand us, too. But um, I learned a lot just from watching and talking to the teens and the children. Um, I learned a lot about their culture and things that they do. And Benny kept telling me I can't change their culture or the, the way things are. And I had to pray about that a lot. But... Um, they all just needed, just like us. Like Tim said, every everybody, no matter where you are around the world, everybody's the same. They need God. They need food. They need shelter, and they need love. The children need love, and that's basically. That's not me. <laughs> oh, that's my house. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, that's the house we built. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, God did answer a lot of prayers for me there. He showed me, you know, like I said, that in a, he opened my eyes to what a third world country was. I had, I really had no clue. Even though I'm a travel agent, I, I've been to a lot of places. I really had no, no idea, you know, what it was like. I mean, there's trash everywhere. They get whatever they can to sell to get food, uh, you know, and they all, I mean, they all just do whatever they can to survive, basically, is what, what they do. Um, there is one little girl that she was took up to Christy, and she still sticks out in my mind because she was like five, and she had um, like a, a three-year-old little sister, and probably a nine-month-old little baby brother, and um, the older teens and kids would all take care of the little kids all day long. I don't know what, I know the parents were probably washing clothes or doing, you know, whatever they could, going to market if they had money. Um, That reminds me, though, the lady that I did give the $5 to, she went the next day to market and bought rice and beans for her kids. And then the following day after that, they came out and showed me that they Got to eat rice and beans with the money I had given her, but so it all wasn't bad. <laughs> the riot that I almost called. But um, anyway, the mother came and set that the baby down, in, and it's just an like an alley road where all the roads are dirt and muddy, mud holes everywhere, and set the baby down in the alley. And um, the five-year-old was in charge of the three-year-old and the baby, and the mother was gone for... I don't know how long she was gone. I don't know where she went. But um, that little five-year-old had to take care of her sister and brother the whole day until her mother came back. And the baby was breastfed, but there's little bags of water that the the missions got for us. And they would get those little bags of water, like when the mother was away and they had to take care of the babies, the other children did, and they would squeeze that water into the baby's mouth to... And that's what the baby would eat while the mother was away. But um, I know I've talked a lot. So And one other thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Dave Winkleman, he, the very last day, or the day before we left, we got to go into what they called the, the market area where we could go and there was a strip where we could buy stuff. But when we got on the bus, he started singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. And I thought, that's the perfect song because he does. He has the whole world in his hands. Thank you. Oh.
2: There wasn't a lot of shopping to be done in Haiti. <laughs> Lucy found I had been praying for an opportunity for, to be able to go on another mission trip. Once you go, it kind of gets in your blood. And um, when I'd gone before, I'd gone as an optometrist, and, and that was very, very rewarding, but I'd been praying for an opportunity to be able to go just to do something labor, just to do some manual things. Uh, and I'd also wanted to go, be able to go with him because he had gone to Africa, I'd gone to Bulgaria, but we'd never been able to go internationally together. And uh, when this opportunity arose... It just kind of spoke to us and uh, I feel very blessed for that opportunity and we did share the challenge to our Sunday school class and um, I'm very honored to say that so many of the class picked up the challenge and uh, were willing to go and we even had one fellow who was doing everything possible to get to go with us and it just did not work out Uh, and why it didn't work out for him I don't know but God had his perfect timing and uh, it just wasn't meant to be but instead Stephanie got to go, uh, which was a blessing. And uh, each one of the team members was wonderful. Um, you learn a lot about people when you sleep in a mosquito-ridden, sweaty place. Um, but uh, formed some wonderful friendships. When I've been back, since I've been back, people ask, well, how was it? Did you have a good time? And the answer is, it was a blessing to be there, but I can't say it was a good time. Haiti's a hard place. Um, I found out how soft I really am. Um the hot weather was just very, very hot for me. Um, and it was, it was a hard place. We sweated more than I've ever sweated in my entire life, I think. And you would drink all day long. And fortunately, because the bathrooms were so horrible, we did not have to go look for a bathroom. We just sweated out. And uh, Which, like I said, that was a blessing. Um, but I've been thinking about, you know, Haiti is a very dark place. Uh, the poverty is intense. The earthquake only intensified what was a very, very bad situation. People were very poor. The trash everywhere. There's more rubble now, but Haiti is just a dark place. There's voodoo. Um, There is Christian, but they accept Jesus along with all their voodoo gods. And uh, Haiti is a dark place, but God has impressed upon me the thought about he's called us to be salt and light. And I thought, well, and, and Lucy said, we can't change the culture. We couldn't save Haiti in the week we were there. And as much as we would have loved to, um, I I feel that our job was to be a small light to a small area of Haiti, and you could see where we had that opportunity. You could see where Sam and Dolores and the other missionaries had started. You would see just little communities like we were in. There would be the, the massive dirt and poverty. But in these areas, there would be a small pocket of hope where the missionaries had been. They had been rebuilding houses. And uh, you could just see that they had been able to be a light to that area of the community. And I feel God allowed us to be a light in that area. And while we couldn't save Haiti in a, in a week, uh, we were able to have a positive influence on a few lives during that week. And, and God did call us just to be a light where we were in that area. And... and like Tim alluded to uh, had mentioned earlier that the morning worship service when we would get there we would join with the other villagers and we would be a light uh, it would just kind of light up that little section of, of the community that we were in and then we would go work um, I think when we all bonded together as a bunch of Christians we lit up the, the uh, Miami airport um, one thing about the people they seemed even though they were poor and they You know, the kids played all over the trash heaps and the rubble. They were content. Um, It didn't bother them that there was trash and that there were goats and pigs and things walking around. That was just normal for them. They had learned to be content where they were. Um, And we were playing games with the kids, and David Higgs came up and said, You know, joy can be found anywhere. And um, that stuck with me because there was joy. These children, um, even though they were hungry and hot, and uh, um, they had joy. And we were able to share that uh, during that week. And um, um, that's basically what I want to share. That God has called us to be salt and light. And uh, we may not be able to light up the whole world, but we can light up our little spot and uh, the little radius that we're in. And I was reading today, and... uh, this is from John 13:46, and it says, I have come as a light into the world so that whoever believes in me would not stay in darkness. And uh, that's what Jesus has done. And uh, I have the most respect for the missionaries that are there because while we got to go, got to sweat, got to stay, got bit by mosquitoes uh, for a week, they are there on a full-time basis, and uh, they are suffering through the storms and the earthquake. And it seems like Haiti just keeps getting hit. And why, we don't know. Um, But again, God can be the one light in that darkness.
3: I'm Christy Lewis, by day, kindergarten teacher. And um, I had been on a couple of international mission trips. Um, I had been to Mexico a couple of times with uh, my daughter Cassidy and hadn't been with Steve on a mission trip. And um, like you, I had gone and done teaching, and this time I thought, well, you know, we're going to build a house. And uh, I'm not a construction worker, I discovered. Um, I handed up some tin and guarded the tools and confronted a Haitian woman and told her, no, she wasn't going to take the water. And that's the only time I was felt threatened the whole time I was there. And, you know, that was, hold it closer. Um, but uh, I'm glad that the two of you cried before I got up here. I was asking Dolores about it. Here I go before I've ever started. I was talking to, to Dolores, one of the mission ladies, missionaries that's down there full-time, about some of the things, um, just asking her various questions. I wanted to learn some some things about um, what went on down there. And um, she had adopted one of the girls that was in some of the pictures that you saw. And she was a handful. She was really good friends with Stephanie. She said, I don't care what your name is, I'm calling you TT." And uh, Stephanie, we we got a good introduction to TT. But um, the government down there doesn't issue a birth certificate until a child is five years old because uh, the uh, mortality rate is so high. One in every five kids approximately dies by the time they're five years old, and the government doesn't want to waste money on paper. So none of the kids really knows when their birthday is, and a lot of the people there aren't really sure how old they are. And isn't that awful? One in every five kids dies. And when we were down there, Lucy's right, she held babies all week long. And only one of those kids that we saw had a diaper on. She held naked, butted kids all week long. And she, she, got, peed on, she got peed on one time, and that was Friday. And she didn't get soaked either. She had a little wet spot on her. And what does the doctor ask us when we go? How many wet diapers does your baby have through the through the day? They didn't have them. They didn't have wet diapers. They didn't have messy diapers. And you're rolling your eyes, shaking your head. Isn't that awful? That tells you something right there. Um And being the teacher, you know, I thought, well, we're not going to have any contact with kids because they're going to be in school when we're down there. Well, you know, evidently I'm not as smart as I thought I was. The schools were destroyed, so they're not there. And in America, regardless of your ability or disability, we have a free and appropriate public education. We're blessed. Every one of us here is blessed that God put us in this country In other countries, you don't have a free and appropriate public education. You have to pay to go to school, and you have to have a uniform. We would see these kids get up, they would have their uniforms on, and they would go to school. They have half day school. Some of them would go in the morning, some of them would go in the afternoons. And I mean, they were made up for school. They were dressed up. Then they would come home and they would put on clothes that looked like rags. And I was talking to some of the missionaries that were there full time. And these families were starving. that they paid for their kids to go to school. And we have people here who take for granted that education. Those of us in here who work in education, I'm looking around and seeing a lot of faces who I recognize as teachers. And those of you who are parents, I want to challenge you to get involved with your kids' education. These people, education means a lot to them. So much that they're not eating. They're paying for their kids to get an education. And we have parents who... You know, don't even know what their kids did in school that day. Um, And like some others have said, you know, people are people the same everywhere. And, you know, we don't need to be so arrogant as to change their culture. There are things that they need. And, you know, I have Amish neighbors up the road, and there are things that I think that they, you know, they need. We don't need umpteen changes of clothes my Amish neighbors evidently don't need shoes in the summertime we all need Jesus we all need food, clothing and shelter not as many clothes as we think we do we all need appropriate medical care and one thing that I've thought about a lot and I've debated about whether to even talk about this I sat there a lot and thought what do these people do when they get sick what is it like for them when they get sick? And I really thought about that. What is it like for them when they get sick? And I'll be darned if I didn't get one of their illnesses. (laughs) And I told Steve, I said, if there is a mosquito out there, it will get me. It will hunt me down and it will chew on me. (laughs) And uh, then I end up with uh, one of their little uh, mosquito illnesses and i said well i kind of found out what it's like for them when they get sick but i really didn't because i have doctors here that can take care of me and i have medicine here and we have iv fluids and if i had been there i wouldn't have had those things and i just i can't imagine and there was one little girl i don't know if you remember or not that they were saying was sick lucy had some tylenol someone was sick and And, I mean, they didn't know what we were, who we were, but they would say sick and, you know, needed medicine. And they would take, you know, anything from anyone. And you brought back some Tylenol. And then they had that other little girl that was there. She looked to be about, I don't know, somewhere between seven and nine years old. They said she wouldn't eat anything. She had a fever. I don't know if she ever took the Tylenol or not. And she didn't. And I watched her walk, and I thought, that poor child is hurting. And I thought, what is wrong with her? And I think now I kind of have some idea of what was wrong with her. And, you know, I I look at these people, and I think, what is it like to be a parent there? And to just, you know, just be interested in survival and trying to just provide for your kids. And one of the men that was working there on the building was working for $6 a day. And I just assumed had nothing and had always had nothing. And to shorten what I'm going to say up here, um, I found out he was a teacher. He was a math teacher and had worked in a school before the earthquake. The earthquake took the school down. So now then he's working for the mission organization for $6 a day to provide for his family. Before that, he had a fairly decent job and provided for his family quite well. And because of circumstances beyond his control, there he is. And you know, that could happen to any of us. Ben and I were talking about, you know, being prepared. My email address is Be Prepared. You know, if you need a first aid kit, hey, I'm your lady. You need a a, a fire extinguisher, got one in my car. you know, I'm one of these people that gets all my ducks in a row. But you know what? That only goes so far. God has a plan, and, you know, it doesn't matter how I have my ducks in a row. His plan takes precedence over any of ours. And, you know, He can He can put you on your back in no time with a mosquito bite. And uh, one thing that you had talked about was contentment. You know, these people were so content. Regardless of their circumstances. And my grandma used to always say, Christy, contentment comes from within you, not from circumstances outside you. I said, what are you talking about? You know, as a child, you don't understand that. As an adult, you do. Contentment comes from within you, not from circumstances outside you.
4: I'm Steve Lus, Christie's husband, and this is certainly not my comfort zone. But I've been looking forward to it for so long. Let me tell you. First, I want to thank the church for allowing us to go. Uh, me and Christie haven't been attending here very long, and um, when this was first brought up, we discussed it among ourselves and said, "No, we shouldn't take a spot. There's a limited number of spots." Well, when the spots didn't fill, we thought maybe we ought to inquire. So anyway, I mean we're, we're thankful to been able to do this it was a privilege to go and represent you um, you know we we all have I don't Christy does rest of, we all have lots of pictures if you're interested in seeing what we saw uh, words can't describe it you know but I'm sure that they'll all be willing to sh- you know share our pictures and show them with you show them to you What I want to do is share with you, though, kind of how the Lord dealt with me while I was there. I can already tell you, most of these are probably surprised I've talked this much, because while I was there, I could discuss the job. When I just started discussing what we were seeing and doing, the emotions were right under the surface. I I couldn't. I couldn't. That's okay. The Lord was dealing with me. Um. I don't think I went down there with an arrogance, you know, or thinking I'm better than them. But, you know, we were Americans. We were going down to help them. Um, we were coming from a blessed place, going to a poorer place. But, you know, the Lord showed me uh, through this. We, we we worked side by side with Haitian uh, men on our on the house. Couldn't communicate with them a bit. Except Dave. Now, Dave learned, I think he had this theory, if they don't understand you first time, repeat it louder. (laughs) I don't know if it worked, but you know by the, slower and louder. But you know by the end of the week, uh, we worked side by side with these men all week. We were able to communicate, convey to them what we wanted. They could convey to us what they wanted. They knew what they wanted on the house. Um, It was great. I went down there with my thought in mind. I said, this isn't my place up here. I want to work. I want to work on a house, Um, relationships with them. I thought, we'll see them a while. We're leaving. You know what? By the end of the week, I love those guys. It was hard to leave them. But we saw in them, you know, I, I saw. I'm no different than they are. We were just put on different places of the earth. I don't know why we were privileged, why I'm privileged to be here. I don't know why they're there. But I tell you what, they were happy. They were there every day willing to work beside us. And uh, I was blessed to be able to do it. I saw I'm no different than they are. They have families they care about. Uh, you know, we were provided with water and we took our food with us. One of the, uh, we learned later in the week he was one of the bosses. They, they, they have a man hired to kind of oversee the job. When you first get there, though, you can't tell one from the other. We shared our water with the workers, the ones that worked, we shared water with them. And when we sat down to eat, sometimes we shared our food with them. Um, it was Arnold. It's like Ronald without the R. Arnold. When he got half a sandwich, peanut butter and jelly, he was sitting by the door. That one day his family was there. He slipped it out the door. They gave him another sandwich. He slipped it out the door. He wasn't going to eat. Even though he was working, he was with us, he was privileged, he wasn't going to eat without feeding his family. I'd like to think that that's no different than any of us would do. Something I hadn't shared... Um, with anybody till this morning, with Christy. We were, we were in, a wor- or we was in a little compound that was all fenced in, or walled in, is where we stayed. There was a, it used to be a place that they drilled, headquarters they drilled water wells out of, and there was a warehouse. And inside that warehouse was a couple bathrooms. And, you know, there was um, three groups of us there for a while, of nine or ten in each group. So there was a limited number of bathrooms, so sleep wasn't good there. So first sign of light, I'd, I was awake. I'd go ahead and get up and go to the bathroom just to get out everybody else's way. But when you came out of that warehouse, there was a, a loading dock there, and it was looking toward the sunrise. So most mornings I came out, I was seeing the sunrise. And I was on that dock. It was kind of high so you could see out over the fence a little bit kind of over the trees and the song that we all sang this morning first one in our worship service and uh, Jim sang it up here kind of adopted as our theme song. don't know all the words but when I walked when I walked out of that warehouse onto that dock every morning guys in my mind went the words I'm the God of the city, I'm the Lord of this people. Greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in the city. We only had a little small part of that, but I feel like we had a part in that. Uh, Another thing, you know, they've. they've, they talked about the mornings when we started out. You know, we'd sing a song in English. They'd recognize the tune. They'd sing it in Creole. That went back and forth all week. On Friday, the last day we were there, the last the last song we sung, you know, we sang back and forth. Then the last one that I guess Dave led us in, we chose to sing was the Hallelujah Chorus. You know, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They sang the same words we sang. There was no language barrier there. And I just thought that is a glimpse of heaven, where people of different colors, people of different nations, people from different backgrounds, standing around worshiping our Lord. That was great. That may have been one of the highlights of the week. But I just want to extend a challenge to everybody. Um, I'd heard it repeated a long time ago. Uh, If you've even thought about doing a four mission or wanting to, go ahead and get your passport. They're not expensive. Go ahead and start setting aside some money because the trip's gonna cost you some money. If you prepare yourselves then you're making yourself available for the Lord to use. And that, that eliminates those excuses. Well, do I have time to get a passport? Do I have time? I don't have the money. Eliminate those things and prepare yourself, and the Lord can use you. Now, don't think, I mean, this foreign trip was wonderful. First time me and Christy got to go out of the country together like this. Uh, it was a great experience. If you want details of what we saw, you'll catch us and talk to us, we'll be glad to share that. But don't think, well, if I'm not, I can't go other country. I can't minister to anybody. You can. When you just simply take somebody who's been sick a meal, you're ministering to them. When you uh, fix a meal for a family who's lost a loved one, when you've gone out and help them put a roof on somebody's house, you know, take them to the doctor when they're sick. That is missionary work. You are meeting their needs. You're ministering. We can all do that, and we should all do that. If we went on this trip, I went to uh, Nicaragua maybe eight years ago. If that's the only ministry or missionary work I do, I'm sadly missing the boat. Okay? The day-to-day stuff is where it really happens. And, you know, we didn't spend me we not we may not spend a lot of time ministering to them spiritually but we were trying to meet a physical need and lots of times uh, on our day-to-day life you know the Lord does prepare people's hearts the Holy Spirit can go ahead of you and have somebody's heart ready to listen to ha- what you have to say when you share your experience but sometimes, To get people to listen, we need to meet their physical needs first. And um, you can do that just by caring for people. Meet their physical needs, and the opportunity will come for you to share Christ.
5: Hi, my name is Steve Buxton. Uh, I don't want to go over a lot of things that have already been talked about, so I'll talk about a few things. The One of the main things that sticks out at me was the, well, not not my shoes, I'll get to that later, (laughs) was the complete difference between where we worked and the downtown, the epicenter. Uh, We came in and we spent most of the week in this neighborhood, is what I'll call it. And then on Thursday, they took us downtown, and it was like two completely different worlds. I believe Parker, one of the missionaries there, as we drove through this one section of town, right as we got through it, he goes, "Uh, that place we just went through was the most dangerous place in, in the Western Hemisphere. Northern and Southern Hemisphere. I mean, this one neighborhood in Haiti, the most dangerous place in the Northern and Southern Hemisphere. To be compared to where we were night and day, Maybe it's just me, but the last time I walked down the street I didn't have I haven't had anybody come running out of their house and come over and grab me by the hand and want to walk down the street with me. I don't know if in your neighborhood that happens, but in this neighborhood we work, that's the way it was. Every day you'd get out of your vehicle and like they said we would meet and sing and people would just come and just want to be with you and want to love on you and That's not necessarily my comfort zone, but but it was amazing to have, you know, little children just walk up and want to hold your hand. Let me get on to a little lighter (laughs) subject. On Saturday, well, I'll mention this. Haiti is a hard place. So hard that three of us went through our shoes. I mean, if you, if you notice the rubble and all that, Dave, I believe, lost the soles off his shoe. Dave Higgs lost the soles off his shoe. And I've got a pair of boots that I love. I've had for probably five years. And they're in Haiti because I, I couldn't wear them home. <laughs> so, yeah, we all had duct tape most of the week. So on, on Saturday, we had talked to a couple of our interpreters, and they told Dave and I that they would take us into town. Because I needed a new pair of shoes. And we had talked through the week. And and they wanted to know more about America and this and that. And, you know, we had some running jokes going. They asked me how much I weighed. They asked Dave how much he weighed. And we weigh about the same thing. So we just told them everybody in America weighs 225. (laughs) And they had no idea what they weighed. So they couldn't tell me. (laughs) Probably about 150. (laughs) And they, they also asked, you know, a lot of other stories. Money came up. And they wanted to know about taxes and things like that. And, you know, they asked me a question. And I told them, everybody in America is rich. Because we compared to where we were, the poorest person in this room is exceptionally wealthy. And I don't want to contradict Christy, but I think her $6 a day was wrong. The The head guy on the job made $12.50 a week. The, the sub-workers made $6 a week. Peanut butter at the grocery store was $10 a jar. I mean, if you want to translate, and I don't know what you make, but take 80% of your weekly wages, and that's what it what peanut butter would cost. Obviously, they didn't buy a lot of peanut butter. I mean, they, they didn't eat most of them. I mean... So in talking about that, I mean, we are rich compared to what they have. So so they gave me a nickname. The, the Creole word for rich is bourgeois. So they called me bourgeois. <laughs> so we talked to them and told them that we wanted to go to the bourgeois side of town. So, And I don't know if we can get the pictures up of the tap-taps, but it, imagine a compact Nissan truck. I know it's been up here before. Take a compact truck, put a topper on the back, hike it up about three more feet, and those are the taxicabs. And Dave and I, we started down the road and we, we got in one with our two interpreters, and we had 15 people in the back of this truck headed downtown. And I don't speak a whole lot of Creole, but I speak enough to understand when they get in and they go, oh, white people. (laughs) And I heard that more than once during the week. One little girl, as we were walking down the street, the first day on the job, Dave Higgs and I got pulled aside and taken to a different part. And we didn't know anybody from anybody. And Dave was a little concerned that we were going to be kidnapped. And as we were coming back, I know the girl was running out going, look, white people, white people, and she'd come running up to us and hug us. But getting back to the tap-taps, we got on a tap-tap, and we're headed to the rich side of town. And if if you could see anything from the pictures of traffic, would you say it was a four-lane road? Six-lane, eight-lane, both ways. Whoever had the biggest vehicle had the right-of-way. Seriously, that's the way it was. You would have three cars abreast this way, two cars this way. At one point in the tap-tap, we were on the sidewalk, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people walking up and down these streets. We have no idea where they're going because most of them don't have jobs, but they're going, and we're driving on the sidewalk, so we don't have to wait in traffic. We got stuck in traffic, so we had to change modes of transportation, So we're going by motorcycle now, and if you can imagine this, we're on about a 185 Enduro dirt bike, three grown men riding through this traffic, and we go most of the way to the bourgeois side of town on a motorcycle. And when we get there, it's basically a 1970s-style department store. And there's a guard standing at the front door with a shotgun. And as we walk in, that's a tap-tap there. As we walk in, they're frisking the Haitians. But they don't frisk the white people. I, I, I don't know why. But we go into the store and we're looking around for what we have. And they've got the shoes that I'm looking for. When we went to Canada... This summer, the Haitians up there had these long, pointy shoes. So I said, I want to find some Haitian shoes. And they they took me to the store, but they wanted way more money than what I wanted to spend. I mean, think back to They make $12.50 a week. And they looked at a pair of shoes. They wanted over $100 for these shoes. And I said, I'm not paying $100 for shoes. So then they take us to street vendors. And we go from street vendor to street vendor to street vendor trying to find Haitian shoes. And we finally get to a place, and uh, the guy shows me some shoes. He wants me to try them on. Of course, they're not sized in American sizes. So they give me a pair of size 44 shoes to try on. And I try them on. I said, they're too small. I need bigger shoes. So he brings me another pair of 44s. I go, I need 45s. Catra Catch or sink. And they keep bringing me 44s, and finally he brings me a pair of 45s. And I try them on, I go, those will fit. But they're scuffed on the end. And our interpreter goes, well, how do you like those shoes? I said, I like them fine, but we're going to have to negotiate the price. So he wants $80 for these shoes on the street. And I said, I'm not going to pay $80. He goes, $60. I said, I'm not going to pay $60. He goes, $55. I said, I'll give you 45 55, 45, 55, 45. He goes, okay, $45. So we get these these Haitian shoes, and I'm styling all the way back to Miami when we get in 15 minutes before our next flight takes off. And then we have to run a half a mile through the Miami airport in my size 45 Haitian shoes. And I think I came in third place, so I think I did all right. But the thing I want, to, I want to end on, as everybody said, the contentment of the Haitians. It was amazing that they had nothing. And they were joyous. And I think back to my life, and compared to them, I've got everything. But not always joyous. So I think for myself, we went down to do construction. Construction. But the construction was the least of what we did down there. It's all about relationship. And I don't believe I gave anything to the Haitians. I think I was the one that received. Thank you very much.
6: I'm Dave Winkleman privilege to go on this trip with these folks and I can say that I was changed from the trip to Haiti. Just look at his hair. <laughs> I'd get Stephanie to work on it after it grows back out a little bit. But uh, it was a kind of eye-opening trip. One thing that uh, uh, impressed me was the poverty. I mentioned it to Tim when we got down there I said, Tim, it's just like lot just like Africa, said, "Hey, poverty is poverty, and that's true. You get to the bottom, and you can't get any worse. It's just people eating trash, trash everywhere. Uh, we are just blessed to be in America. Like some of these guys said, that uh, it's through God's grace that we're here and not there. I, I couldn't live in Haiti. That place is hot. I would be, if I was there in Haiti, and they said you got to stay here, I'd be looking for a way to get out." Uh, It's a tough country, really tough country. And the people there are content, because I guess that's all they know. And uh, we are definitely spoiled here in the U.S. I don't think we could live there. But uh, that's the one thing that did change me, that uh, impressed me the most, that uh, God's grace, that he allowed me to live here in the U.S. and not in Haiti. I don't know why, like some of the other ones said, I don't know why, but I thank God for that grace and for that mercy. That he allowed me to be here, and uh, we should all take note of that. That uh, God is good to us. We are blessed every day. We take it for granted, and uh, we shouldn't. But uh, God is good, and it was a good trip. All the people that went, I think I uh, uh, made some good acquaintances with some of the newer ones, and I love them dearly. And. Uh, I didn't hear any whining on the whole trip, and that place is hot. And I don't remember anybody complaining about the heat. Uh, I know it was on everybody's mind, but nobody complained about it. And uh, it was a good trip. That everybody worked together. And again, I was blessed because of uh, being to go on it. So I uh, thank you.
7: Well, since I don't talk very good. <laughs> No, it's kind of funny how this whole trip started for me. Uh, Back when Tim came in the shop one day, he was talking about the Haiti trip, and I thought, oh, man, I want to go. I want to go so bad. But my salon was undergoing a renovation at the time, and I was in with a new company. And so I didn't want to commit to anything because business was more important than God's work at that time. And so I struggled with that a little bit. And so the week before, Dave Higgs came in and said, yeah, I need my Haiti haircut, buzz it off. And I said, "Gosh, I was really wanted to go to that." And he said, "Well, there's a spot open." And I said, "What?" "There is." He said, "Yeah." And I said, "Really?" And this was on a Tuesday and the group was leaving the next Friday. So I thought about it. Dave left got on the phone. And I called Judy and I said, "So there's a spot open for the Haiti trip." And she said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, what do you think about me going?" And she said, well, you've got to have a passport. so I got that. She said, well, you've got to have some malaria medication and you've got to have uh, some shots. Well, it was so funny. I had been to the doctor two weeks before to have a checkup and I had had my new tetanus shot, which I always get, and didn't tell anybody on the team this. Only my husband and my family know, but my uh, thyroid levels were zero. My thyroid's failing. <laughs> They're probably freaking out right now. And I didn't tell anybody that. And I kind of fibbed on the... Application that my health was in great shape, and it is not. But I didn't say anything. So I called. So Judy and I talked, and I said, "Whoa, whoa, wait a minute! I got to call Todd. I haven't talked to Todd yet." So I called him, and I said, "Remember the Haiti trip? I wanted to go." He said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, I can go next week." I said, "He said there's an opening," and he said, "Todd's so good because he was struggling because his dad was so ill and he was failing." And we knew we knew that it was going to be about three weeks, but we didn't tell anybody. And he said, Steph, you're led to go, and God's leading you to go. You need to go. And I said, okay. Called Judy back, had a plane ticket, was ready to go in like three hours. And my friends that knew I was sick, they, we decided that I would just pray about it, and I wouldn't worry about it. And heat doesn't really bother me. I don't care to sweat. <laughs> if you're sweating, everybody else is sweating, everybody was stinking, so I didn't care. So it was so exciting to get to go. And the first day that we were there, I had a breakdown. <laughs> it was just horrible for us to try to sit and eat a snack in front of these Haitian people who were begging you for food and water. And I lost it. And I just started bawling. I couldn't handle it. I just can't imagine people begging for food and water just a drink. I, can't, I just... We don't have to do that here. No one in America has to beg for food and water. There's no reason to. We have plentiful amounts of food and and water. We throw away food here all the time at this church because we can't pass it out. And at this point in my life, that makes me physically ill to think about that. It makes me very ill to see people there that will eat something that's on the ground and trash and anything you don't want. So the first day, I did have my breakdown, but... Some of the things that I think about the most was Lucy and I, we had a great time with the kids. I love kids. I can't stand Logston sometimes, even though I love him. He drives me crazy. And I, But everything those kids did never bothered me. And I, I found out that children there don't care what you look like or who you are. They love you no matter what. They don't believe in personal space. Mostly, all day long, the ladies and I had at least seven children You had them here, 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 here. They were all over you. They were fighting for your love and your attention. I can remember holding hands with one little girl and two other little girls smacking and hitting because they were fighting to hold our hands. And like they said, every day when we got out of the vehicles, they just come running to you. And it was so cute because you would hear, Lucy, 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 and Stefani, Stefani, Stefani. And we couldn't remember their names. I could never remember any of their names. So I come up with nicknames for all of them. One little girl, was so cute. The first time I took a picture of her, she just... And I thought, my goodness. So I called her Grouchy. So every day when we'd get out, I'd say, where's Grouchy? Where's Grouchy? And those kids, they just loved that. They loved being identified by somebody, especially white people. Uh, there was another little boy that had lost his two front teeth, and Lucy had started singing to him. And another child, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. And so I named him Two Front Teeth. So every day when we, we would get out, we'd look for him. And I'd say, where's two front teeth at? And here he'd come running, just a-grinning. And they got used to those nicknames. Like they said, the little girl at the camp, um, Sam and Dolores' the little girl, her name was Titiana. Is that right, Titiana? And I just called her Titi. And she told me, that's my, my name. And I said, well, that's what going to call you. And, and she got used to it. But her and I really clicked because she's very hyper child. And I'm a very hyper person, and I was a very hyper child, and was on medication and when I was a child. And so her and I talked a lot about trying to control herself and how hard it is. And I know it's difficult as a child to be able to do that, and it's, it's even hard as an adult to do it sometimes. But I really clicked with her. I, I really I, I felt for that little girl. And I was so thankful that she had somebody like Sam and Dolores that took her as a, as a baby. And she was dying when they got her. She was literally at death's door. And they took her, and they were able to revive her, and she is a well, healthy, and well-educated little girl right now. And that made me really happy to see that. But it wrenched my heart for other children. And the first day there, Lucy came and said, there's a woman trying to give away a baby. There's a woman trying to give away this little girl. Well, bam, there I went. And I know that was the big thing in the Sunday school class. I, the kids in our Sunday school class that said, are you going to bring back a Haitian baby? I thought, oh my gosh, I'd love to bring back a baby. I don't know what Todd thinks about it, but I'd like to bring back a kid. And I found myself attached to this little girl named Ashley. Oh, and every night when we got back to the camp, I had to pray about that because I couldn't bring her home. I mean, the United States wasn't going to let me bring her home. But I, I, I found myself just so attached to her and wanting her so bad because I thought I could do something different for her that she wasn't going to get there. And at the end of the trip, Lucy and I walked around one day against Benna's better judgment for us. We drove Benna nuts, Lucy and I did, as a matter of fact. We were constantly breaking the rules, but we couldn't help it. And Lucy and I, every night, were like, okay, we can't tell Benna we did this. Don't tell Benna. Don't tell Benna. Don't tell Benna. Every night. (laughs) But we couldn't help it. It was so hard. And we know that it makes a burden on the other missionaries that go, and you do give food and, and water and sneak it, but... It's so hard not to. It's so hard to look at those little eyes that don't ask for anything but food and water and not want to give it to them. But we found ourselves sneaking things and doing things and watching for Benna and sneaking things. And we were constantly watching for Benna. It was so funny. Where's Benna at? Benna's over there. Give it to him. Give it to him. Give it to him. I mean, it was just... I never felt like I deceived and lied to somebody so much in my life like we did to Benna. Because Benna was watching us. Huh? Yeah, well, I know Christy was probably doing things, too. Christy was our watch guard. She was really good about it. We tried to take turns. We had to physically have somebody as a guard watching our stuff constantly. And I had to come to grips with, if somebody did take it, I I realized that I wouldn't have an anger about it because they only were doing what they had to do. If they saw a backpack that had something in it, they couldn't help it. That's the only way they're going to make it is if they could take things. And we did have a little bit of a problem the last, last day that we were there. Some things that got taken, not from us personally, but from the group. And it was very devastating for them, very devastating for the compound. And we prayed about it and talked about it. And, and I know God's going to take care of it, but I think it was God's way of uh, showing the group and the compound that maybe money and everything, that God's everything. We don't need money like we need God because, like my grandpa always said, if you put God first and rely on God, everything else will fall in place. And I've had a hard time learning to believe that because I'm the kind of person that thinks you have to take things in your own hands and do it, then you'll pray about it. But you just got to take it in your own hands first. And on this trip I learned that we better pray about it first and then God will take us where we need to go. But there's so many things that happened on the trip besides the little things with the children. Uh, the last night, uh, Friday night, I had a great experience. Um, there was a team from Texas that was there. The men were working on a house also in another area, and the ladies there did a Bible school at this same area. And so it was the last night, so um, I wanted to go back. Everybody else was pooped. I am a night person. I get my wind. A new, I'm all ready to go again at night, so I said, I'm going to go. And... Um, we went to this area that a Baptist church had been started by a woman and her husband, and she's also trying to get a school together that um, Dolores had um, come really close to and helped her start this, this church. So as we're riding, and it's at night time, and I hadn't been off of the compound at night at all, and it was very scary, very scary, because there are no lights, because there's not much electricity. And um, the guys from BGR, David, especially one of them, um, I was in the vehicle he was driving. And he was explaining things about areas that you don't stop in and that you don't want to be in. And we come to this one area, and it was an area about as wide as this aisle right here. And we stopped there right in front of it. And I thought we were getting ready to get out. Then he started to drive down through it. And the walls were, you know, 10 foot high. And I said, oh, my gosh, you're going to drive down that? He said, yeah. And the rest of the group said, yeah, that's what we said every night. And as we're getting closer, and and it almost is getting scary because you feel like you're going to get yourself in an area where something could happen to you and you can't go anywhere or do anything about it. And it made me really nervous. I had a lot of anxiety about it. And I could hear this chanting. And David said, listen, listen, the kids are chanting. And in Creole they were chanting, welcome Americans, welcome Americans. But it was in Creole, and I can't remember how they were saying it. And I just remember I just started getting so excited. It was just so cool because... I love children, the children's choir. And as we, as we pulled up and got out, at least 60 to 65 children just come running. I fell down. I got knocked down. And the kids, of course, they're picking me up. They're trying to help you, and they're smiling. And so we go into this area that's a little bit wider than this aisle and almost as long. And there's seating, and all these children are lined up, and it is so hot in there. So hot because there is no air. It's not open. There's no lighting. There's no electricity. And they have all these balloons strung up and all this decoration. They had taken the balloons that the children had gotten that week from the VBS ladies and decorated it because it was their last night there. thought oh, that was so neat. And the VBS ladies were like, look, they decorated for us. You know how sweet. And it was really neat. So um, the lady that was running the church, her husband, they began to sing hymnals out of an uh, old hymnal book. In Creole, and I just, I knew every hymnal they were singing, and I would sit there and sing it in um, in English with them, and the kids got really tickled at that. The kids loved to hear you speak in English. In fact, when we were reading the Bible stories, uh, they had told me, they, I would read the story, and then I had an interpreter, and she would read the story to them, but they wanted to hear you say it. They liked to hear you speak English, but... So the singing goes on for about 30 minutes, and I got tickled because I thought, man, at my church, would they be mad about this? They'd want this singing to quit. This is too long to sing. I I never mind the singing, but, you know, sometimes that happens. We get very um, um, comfortable, and then we want things on our time. Well, it's time for the singing to quit. We need to get the the offering going, then Brother Dwayne needs to start preaching, you know. We're always looking at our watches. These people paid no attention to that. They did not care what time it was. They didn't care how long they were there. And like you see, you have no electricity. You can't see. So about 30, 35 minutes, the singing quits. And I've got two children here, two children here, one of them that's trying to sit on my shoulder, and another one that's leaning on me. And then they're trying to pile on that. And I begin to watch this man do chalkboard drawings. I don't know if anyone here has seen the chalkboard drawings. If you've seen the chalkboard drawings, raise your hand. That is the most awesome thing I have ever seen and experienced in my life. This man has this chalkboard, and he's from Texas, and it's a special chalkboard. It has clouds up in it and nothing on it. And he has special lights that come from behind it down on it. And he begins to draw this scenery with this special chalk. And it starts out, he started out just drawing, and I couldn't tell what it was. Then you could tell it looked like grass, and then it looked like a cliff, and then you could see like a stone-type building. And at the end of it, he draws this cliff area that comes out with these the three crosses on it. And you can see the an image of the bodies on the cross and Jesus and the two thieves, you know. And, and it was just, and as he's doing it, it, it keeps coming alive. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this is so awesome. And one of the fellows that was with the Texas group, he kept turning around, he goes, you just wait, you just wait. You know, and, and as it's going, and and I'm getting hotter and hotter, and I could feel the core of my body just getting hotter and hotter because it just feels like it's getting hotter and hotter in this room. And these kids are on top of me, and they're hot too, and they're just hanging on me. And he finally gets done with the picture, and then he changes the lighting. And everything about this, I can't describe it. And when they were trying to describe it to me, I can understand why they couldn't describe it. Because when the lighting changed... I actually, I felt like I experienced the moment that Jesus died when those lights changed and it became darkness and those crosses stood out. And all of a sudden, my entire body, it felt like the whole inner core of my body dropped to about 50 degrees. I absolutely became so cool and so, I, I can't explain it. And when I got back and was telling Lucy about it, she said, Oh, the Holy Spirit came over you, girl. And I said, I, It had to have been. It was. But it was just... I just, I couldn't believe how I felt. And I sat there so long, and, and then the lights changed again. And then before you know it, in the middle of this change, all you see in the upper part of the picture, you don't see the rest of it at all. All the chalk that he's done is gone. And then you see the crown of thorns and Jesus' face and a cross. And everybody just, oh, it was just so amazing. And after that, he gives the message about Christ, and, and it it was just the most unbelievable experience. And when the kids, we started to get up, I didn't realize it, but my legs had gone numb and I fell forward because I tried to step and they were had I'd lost the blood in my legs, I guess, I don't know. But I fell and hit my head and, of course, they were trying to pick me up. I'm like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I wasn't really fine, but I wanted to act like I was fine. But that moment, I just I just remember thinking, no matter where you are, no matter where you're at, God is the same, and you can. And those people I know could have the same feeling. And the one thing that I I thought about a lot was that afterwards, the man had to explain to these children that this was not voodoo, because even though they were part of a Baptist church, anything that's unique like that, that is magic type, they think it's voodoo. And I just, on the way home from the trip, I had to think about this a lot. Um, we are founded in God we trust. Um, um, everything about the way our country was built is supposed to be in God, but we really, all of us don't do it. But I, I thought about that, that because we are founded on God, that we have a certain amount of blessing that comes with it. I talked to a couple of preachers about that, that we just receive a certain amount of blessing. And I thought about that, that that country having so much voodooism takes away from that blessing. And that w- us people that live for God and believe in God and trust in God, we have to pray more for those people than we do for ourselves because we have the opportunity to have God around us all the time. Anytime you need help, you have a problem, there's a church you can walk into and get help. There's a Baptist church somewhere that's going to help you. I believe that. I don't know how many people we've had show up here on Sunday that needed us, and we're right there because we're all doing it God's work. And they don't have that there. They don't have, they don't have that support. They have nothing. If somebody happens to somebody, like uh, medical, they don't have the help. But, but here in America, we have that. We, we have all the needs. And a lot of times, needs are met through a church. And listen, that's God. That's just God. That's, that's God's people showing his love. And I thought to myself, wow. So I challenge everybody here for the next year every night that when you pray and you pray with your children to pray that that voodooism leaves that country that god breaks all those walls down because we know we can but we have to do it as a group that he breaks the walls down of voodoo i just can't imagine living in a country where voodoo is so strong that he breaks those walls down and that the christianity becomes the religion of that country and i believe that just our church alone can make a difference of that. And I want to thank the church for giving me an opportunity to go there because I had never been on an international mission trip and it has truly changed my life. I had to realize that working hard and worrying about making money and your shop and is not important. Is, is doing something for someone else and, and doing it in God's name. And I appreciate that and I thank you all for letting me go. And I'm sorry I lied to you about my health.
0: Thanks for sharing now. (laughs) Well, I want to thank each of you for giving us an opportunity to to share. I I hope you have a sense of what we experienced. If you understand that the mission trip that we went on was intended to give to them, I don't know if you realize we probably brought back way more than we gave. And it truly does change your life, sharing your faith and your life with other people. And um, we we encourage you, if the opportunity ever comes along, take it. Take advantage of it. Um, Once again, we thank you for the opportunity.